0: Profiles in Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. All right. Hello and welcome, everyone. Profiles in Strategy, Episode 9 of the Vietnam War for the Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. Joining me today, fellow colleagues from the Strategy and Policy Department, we have Dr. John Garofano, Dr. David Stone, and Dr. Tim Hoyt. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Glad to be here. All right. Uh, so... We talk a lot in the course about um, when to open a peripheral theater. You know, it has to be exceptionally rewarding, according to according to Clausewitz. And um, we started the course foundationally with talking about, you know, what a bad decision it was for the Athenians to make the decision to open a peripheral theater in Sicily and try to, you know, do something that isn't really aligned with their aims. Um, <clears throat> that same comparison can be applied to this week's case in terms of we have a larger cold war going on and we have different theories of containment about how to do that. Yet we decide to engage and, and, uh, try to contain in Vietnam, but then we decide to continually expand that, that containment so that it becomes much more of like a a rollback and a, and a, and a full-on fight as opposed to just, as opposed to just containment. Um, so Uh, John, we'll start the conversation with you. Was it the right call to open this this peripheral theater in the larger Cold War?
1: Uh, Oh, if you say, was it the right call, then uh, I would have to say that in retrospect, it was probably not the right call. But I think we can probably understand a little bit about why it was done. First of all, the theater is partly open, you know, and that's the issue of this long-term commitment. Since 1945, accelerated after 1950 with the Korean War, and then of course with president eisenhower's uh commitment to DM, and then becomes ensconced in u.s policy and independent government of south vietnam and all that and then we get blood on our hands with the death of DM because we uh we did not oppose it at, at a minimum uh so would oppose the coup so it's open and that's one of the challenges and then i think we don't quite realize um that we are getting deeper involved or that we cannot control getting deeper involved so that all that incremental escalation, I think Kennedy believed he could control it, Johnson initially believed he could control things, and nobody really saw where it was going to lead. So that's where kind of the failures of assessment come in. Um, and I think if we build on Clausewitz thinking about when do you open the second front too, there is again some justification for engaging in Vietnam. And it, you know, you can ask, is the home front secure? Is the main battle secure? And if you're looking at the cold war, you know, the home front is secure and the, and um, it's, it's not like we're winning the cold war, but we're secure and we've achieved certain kinds of understandings and agreements with our primary enemy. Um, Can you, uh, is there a payoff if you win to help that uh, main battle or the main part of the war? And, you know, of course, with Gallipoli, um, as an example, I think there was the idea that the payoff would be tremendous um, in some way. And yeah, that would be, if if, if if we could be victorious in Vietnam, there'd be some serious payoff for the rest of Southeast Asia. And perhaps we talk too much just about the domino theory and preventing that, and a little less about... Uh, possible benefits, and it's possible one could even look at the changes that happened in Indonesia in the fall of 1965 as you know having some relationship to the U.S. decision to engage. Uh, and then finally, you want to ask, can you win? And that's the pro- That that was the that was the real mistake. Um, we believed we could win. I tried to explain three or four or five reasons why that was the case um, in the lecture. Um, but if you can't win, then then, it's, um, then you don't engage, you don't open or engage in that second front. It's a little different from Sicily because I think we did a, a fairly, well, we did a, a decent job. We did a I'm lot of thinking, that we did a lot of thinking about whether we could win. It was just the wrong thinking and some of the analysis wasn't correct.
0: Okay, interesting, interesting point. So Dave, we'll, we'll go to you next for a response.
2: Sure. So I think one of the things, to, to amplify a point that, that John Garofano made, um, one of the things that makes U.S. decision-making difficult here is that it wasn't a question of going from zero to 60. It was a question of going from zero to one to two to three. And so the, the U.S. kind of edges itself into, into Vietnam. Um, and the initial steps of U.S. intervention were things that the U.S. had done and done successfully in the Cold War. Um, The Truman Doctrine starts off with Greece and Turkey. um, And Greece was facing a communist insurgency. And U.S. advisors and money and equipment led to success. Now, there's other things going on as well, but it's not hard for the U.S. to find places where this small footprint in in, Vietnam began um, had worked. And then the problem becomes once you have that small footprint, then you've committed more. And so there's an incentive to keep committing rather than lose. And so I think not to excuse American decision-making but to understand it, Johnson and his advisors could find examples of where what they wanted to do in Vietnam had worked before. Um, In the end, it doesn't shake out that way, but again, it's not as though there aren't precedents in Malaya in the Philippines in Greece and Turkey where interventions of this sort had actually succeeded. Okay, interesting. Uh,
3: Tim, we'll go to you next. Yeah, I think another thing to keep in mind is this is happening in the context of Korea, which at the time was conceived of as actually more of a loss in the Cold War than the way we now look at it. And so there was again, significant incentive to engage early, um, possibly partly driven by the theory that if we'd engaged earlier in Korea during the period of the Civil War in 4950, then the conflict would have been more manageable um, when the conventional phase broke out. We also have, um, unfortunately, uh, we have a treaty commitment to South Vietnam and South Vietnam is under attack. So this issue of uh, credibility becomes important. The issue of honor becomes important. Uh, South Vietnam is in trouble. And the question is, what can we do Uh, with some assurance of effectiveness. And that deteriorates from 1960 to 1964. Um, The earlier phase where we're putting in advisors appeared to be working fairly well from 1960 to 62 or 63. And then it begins to break down as the NLF becomes more capable, more numerous, more effective. So as both John and Dave said, we sort of slid into this thing. It's not like The United States had a great debate in 1964 um, and every voting citizen came to Washington DC and cast their ballot after after arguments by both sides to go to Vietnam, the the way that Athens did on the Sicily expedition. Instead, this is a kind of a creeping rolling problem where we're trying to find ways to um, control the outcome as much as possible and still think that controlling the outcome is possible up until 1968 or 1969, and then we begin to reassess. But by that point, we're deeply committed and have much more
0: to lose. So let me let me follow up with you then on the, on that point and work it back around here. Um, so we we talk about this gradual increase, right? But in uh, in 1964, Johnson now has a new mandate because he's been he's been elected right? He's not just kind of the the president that that the vice president that 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 takes over now he's no kidding been elected, he is the president. So he has a mandate. Um, And there is that is one of our inflection points where it's time for a strategic reassessment. And they do have this reassessment. They all sit down and they and they all come together. And there's people that say it's a quagmire. And there's people that say no, we you know, honor whatever. Um, Why? increase to, no kidding, ground troops as opposed to just advisors and money and and that type of thing. And we'll start the conversation with you, Tim.
3: Well, a big part of the problem was that the NLF moved to what looked like a Maoist third phase with help from the North Vietnamese Army, and they were defeating battalion-sized units of the South Vietnamese Army in the field. So using light infantry, they were defeating more heavily armored, more mechanized forces uh, and defeating them in some detail. And that made it look as though there was, South Vietnam was about to fall to a communist insurgency. And if, I think this was the basis of a lot of Westmoreland's strategy, if your enemy is fighting a conventional battle, well, that's something that US forces can contribute to in meaningful ways. And if the South Vietnamese army can't contribute to that conventional battle, then putting US troops in to take up that part of the burden to carry the box to war, if you will, uh, makes a certain amount of sense. Um, certainly that was, the, that was one of the major arguments for ground force intervention, that air power wouldn't be enough and that advisors had not been enough. So we had to do something more. The rate at which we escalated uh, and the number of troops that we eventually put in was I think far more than anyone was thinking in nineteen sixty four, but also became became a kind of a cascading effect, where lack of success created assessments that said, well, if we only double down on this a bit more, uh, then we'll we'll do better. You know the, our basic approach is right. We just don't have enough stuff. We see that in later counterinsurgencies as well. Um, this is an error that is made again and again. Um, and it's one of the reasons we study Vietnam and compare it to the, counter, to the counterinsurgency campaigns that we look at afterwards, because it's interesting to see how that resonates and how the idea of sticking to uh, a plan that involves heavy commitment of American forces is very hard to back away from. Um, once you've committed, it appears to be very difficult for political leadership to walk back from that and for military leadership to say, we may be on the wrong course.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Dave,
2: what's your what's your sense on this one? Sure. Uh, I, I wouldn't disagree with anything that Tim said. I would just suggest a, a, perhaps an additional angle. Uh, and that has to do with American domestic politics. And I'm sure Professor Garofano is going to have a lot to say on this. The one thing I would point out in particular is the the unpleasant precedent of the loss of China. Um, at the time that, that Johnson is making these decisions, he's certainly, you're correct, he has a mandate. He's been elected president and elected quite handily. Nonetheless, it was only 15 years before that China had fallen to the, the Chinese Communist Party and there had been an enormous political backlash against the Democrats who had been in power when that happened. Um, and Johnson, though he has this mandate and this enormously ambitious domestic agenda, does not have a lot of foreign policy credentials. And so he's vulnerable um, to being accused of being weak on foreign policy. Uh, and I think clearly did not want to be the president who lost Vietnam after Truman lost China. Uh, and so I think that kind of domestic political motivation, which has nothing to do with the kind of Clausewitzian rational calculus of international loss and gain, has an important part, is an important part of the story uh, and has to be taken into account uh, when we think about the decision-making.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: John, we'll, uh, we'll go to you for response.
1: Yeah, I think they've covered most of it. And, um, you know, it, it, a lot of it on the domestic side is in the lecture. It did. I, I think those motivations then color the kinds of uh, assessment that's done. So as George Ball, one of the dissenters, put it, I couldn't show how we could win. You know, I couldn't show how even if we gave up South Vietnam, we could win the rest of the area. He just couldn't show it. So... Um, I think the administration of the president and the people around him who, you know, they essentially supported him. Um, They supported his domestic agenda, even though many of them were Republicans. Um, They supported the foreign policy agenda. And um, so their assessment was probably colored by a lot of the accomplishments that he sought to, to do. What I tried to show in the lecture is that these were really especially if you if you even if you look at the news today i was looking at um, some of the coverage of the hurricane and looking at the housing and insurance issues there and of course a lot of the the voter uh voting issues and voting concerns in the last election and the one coming up you know there are issues that have been around for 100 years and this legislation in 64 65 and a little bit in the next couple of years was was really important to addressing those. And enough people in the administration, not just the president, really didn't want to let that go. And it may, it may have, may have caused them to be a little bit risk accepted. So, um, I think it it does, it does affect the assessment.
0: So you mentioned, um, Cabinet issues uh, in 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 the lecture, and you know it's it's not lost upon me that uh, we're talking about this case that is literally the very reason why the strategy and policy department was created by Stansfield Turner because of uh, because of Vietnam. So we have kind of a kind of a legacy here, <laughs> um, and one. Not, so it's not just the loss of Vietnam; it's also the things that were happening within the civil military divide. Uh, in Vietnam, both during the war and what it creates after the war. Um, y- you mentioned in the lecture the uh, the book by McMaster, The Dereliction of Duty book, and um, you kind of downplayed it a little bit
1: uh, with, uh, but... Yeah, <clears throat> it, and I got called, call, called out for it by a student. Yes. <laughs> uh,
0: well, I've read that book too. I'm not going to call you out, but I, I do want to have a discussion about it. But it does seem like the at least some of the evidence that he would suggest that johnson did kind of play these kind of byzantine politics between and amongst his chiefs and didn't create a like a harmonious atmosphere it was it's more of a uh one of one of competition and rivalry versus let's all kind of figure out the best strategy what, what do you think john
1: yeah. So I think it's important that um, I actually, when the book first came out, I went to the archives and I tried to track, go into the boxes that he went into and try to put together um, the story in a couple of the chapters that I was most interested in, uh, which are early, early to mid-65. And I think if you read it very closely, there, it's not entirely clear that there is so much subterfuge going on, to put it bluntly. Um, there was there would be a statement made or a memo put forward by the chiefs. It was not well received by either the secretary of defense or the president. Um, they worked to disagree with it one way or the other. But it's very hard to say that there was um, just so much, I don't know what a better nicer word than backstabbing is, um, You know, burying of opinions or burying of analysis. I just don't find that that was the case when I look closely at specific examples. Um, Now, did Johnson want to hear all of the chiefs argue in front of him? No, probably not. I mean, as McNamara says, most people don't like conflict. You know, even FDR did not like conflict right out in front of him. They don't want to see it uh, live it occasionally happened. Um was he a bully? Probably not to the extent that people say and I know this, I mean, this is my opinion just based on a few people that worked around him. Um and they believe that a lot of what's in some of the books like The Best and the Brightest is really uh fiction. Um I'm sure there were these aspects to him, you know, presidents have titanic uh egos and not necessarily in a bad way. They go through through hell to become president. So um I just find that the disagreement was uh, number one, real, number two, well-known on both sides of the civil-military divide, Uh, number three, not resolved, and number four, probably could not have been resolved because the chiefs were divided, because there was no clear answer as to what to do, and because his civilian advisors were divided. And they were divided because the problem was so Intractable and complex. I'll stop there for
0: now. Okay. Yeah. Either either way, it doesn't sound like a good environment under the institutional dimension of strategy for uh, you know <laughs> formulating a good plan. Later. Putting together a
1: rational strategy, probably not.
0: Uh, Dave, we'll go to you next on this one.
2: Yeah. And again, I'm not a specialist in American politics or American civil-military relations, so I just make a very few general comments. One is that as as I look at it as an outsider to the field, it seems clear that in the Johnson administration, nobody was enthusiastic about big intervention in Vietnam, but very few people were willing to say, no, this is a terrible idea. George Ball being the the most common, the the biggest exception. Uh, And I think among the military elite, no one thought that this was going to be a great or fun thing to do, but people who were out and out opposed to it, not actually very many. Uh, And when you look at the American public as a whole, polling data suggests that Vietnam was genuinely popular when it began up until roughly around the Tet Offensive. There's a fairly steady decline. Um, So while there were people who turned out to be right that this was not going to turn out well, I think the consensus among civilian elites, among the military elite, among the general public was this is something worth doing and something that we can do. Um, and so I, I'm not sure that anyone comes out of here looking particularly prescient in this, uh, any group we look at.
3: Interesting. Tim, what's your sense in this one? Um, I, I would agree with both my colleagues. I'm not sure I have a lot to add, but one of the problems that the US faced is building a stable government as opposed to a stable society in the midst of an ongoing war. and. That's quite difficult for an outside power to do. And it's especially difficult when the outside power is trying to do it primarily through the military instrument. That's gonna create conflict inside the state where you're fighting. It's gonna create conflict within the US about you know, who should be running this thing. And if, they're, if it's not succeeding, then there will be criticisms about who's running this thing and what they're doing. It's just a very unstable situation. And I think we see it reenacted in both Iraq and in Afghanistan, that we find that, you know, once there's a big military footprint in another country, it tends to really complicate things. That doesn't necessarily mean victory is impossible, but it complicates things a lot. And it complicates things on the domestic front in our own society, on the domestic front in their society. And it makes creating a military strategy which is going to rebuild the host nation military more difficult because we will tend to take on burdens automatically because these are missions that we can accomplish. So I think there there are lots of reasons why you can look at it and say, oh, this is gonna be problematic. What's interesting is that we looked at those problems again in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and we didn't substantially change our approach, at least initially. which suggests maybe we're having trouble learning lessons from our own coin interventions uh, and that's something we can talk about later
0: so i do want to ask a follow-up question on on civ Mill, john we'll start with you on this one and it's it's um it's somewhat conceptual um because the way i view uh CIV-MIL relations as military officers is obviously you know uh, somewhat different uh i know we talk about the Huntington model or, or i think you called it in your lecture John, the ridgeway model whatever um you know, if, if, if you give your best possible military advice and say, Hey, we can't do this for X, Y, and Z, or in order to do this, we're going to need 500,000 troops, million troops, whatever it is. And then you're told, like in this case, you know, some of what Johnson does at certain points, no, you can only have this, but figure out a strategy that does it for me anyway. At that, at that point, it's, you know, again, we talk about the unequal relationship, right? It's like, well, I, I gave you my best military advice. You're telling me to sit down and color. Now I my choice is I either resign and protest or I figure out a way to help make this fail because I've already told you I can't do this correctly. So like that, you know, that that's kind of how I see the the unequal relationship. And so, John, we'll, we'll start with you.
1: Well, it is unequal if... Um, if you if it's if it's very clear that this is a uh the, the military is presenting a well thought out widely supported and fairly obviously accurate or correct uh, perspective and then civilians say well that's nice but i'm going to incur an extra 50,000 casualties because i'm going to do it my way and you need to figure out how to do that and make it work then yes that I mean, that would border on uh, some kind of you know, dereliction of duty on the part of the civilians and then and, and perhaps worse. Um, but I don't think that was exactly um, the case here because military advice was divided. And so, as I pointed out, even, even SYNC PAC was not opposed to the hard knock strategy. The army and the marines didn't think that was necessary didn't think air power would have much to do with it i think a lot of air power theorists or historians now you know also agree that that wasn't where the war was going to be won so there are so the president is dealing with probably five to seven major uh strat pieces of strategy and figuring out what to do with them and civilians do have to work within a budget um and they have to think about what the domestic audience is going to do. And if he chose a certain if the if the civilian chooses a path which causes the public to want to leave within three years, that's an obvious failure. And so they're not, you know, in this case, they didn't choose something that was so obviously going to fail like that. And if they choose something that gets them in a war with either the Soviet Union or China, then that's also considered a failure. And and those are things that were not, you know, that they disagreed with fundamentally with the um most uh, extreme, I guess, I wouldn't say extreme, but the, the uh, most escalatory of the military advice and the, 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 the officers who, who proposed that, the senior military officers. So I come back to the fact, yes, I think if, if, if the situation is as you say, then uh, that is wrong, fundamentally wrong, and, um, and would go against you know, any democratic system. But it, it wasn't in this case. I don't know about other historic cases in history, but in this case, there was a wide variety of advice. It was not clear which strategy was going to work, and um, and I think the administration did a half decent job of uh, of making it work. Don't forget, fifty percent of the U.S. casualties, at least, uh, and probably similar, um, possibly more for the for the enemy side, came. After the Tet Offensive and during the Nixon administration, which is a very different kind of strategy, and so you really have, you know, two kinds of wars, two strategies which don't work. Um, so it's a, I come back to the fact that it's a very difficult question. I, I just did want to add one problem is that the military filtered out advice from senior military officials, didn't just basically wash them out and didn't promote them. Uh, who had a more, um, uh, who had an approach that was less reliant on conventional force and less reliant on air power. And so those like James Gavin and others, uh, and the early Max Taylor and, and Ridgway, you know, they were not listened to. Uh, and it, it was, it's interesting to think about what if the military advice did contain more of that uh, kind of uh, approach, and then w- would the civilians have, list- have listened, and would it have been more successful?
0: Yeah, that's, um, that's a very fair point. One of the things that exacerbates the civil-military relationship is the mill-to-mill relationship. Um, because when you have people that are saying, we can do it all from the air, we don't need any ground troops, it sort of muddies the waters. But not that I have any strong feelings
2: about that or have seen that in practice, but uh, Dave, we'll go to you on this one. So again, yeah, I'm not a specialist in American SIDMIL relations, so this is going to just be a very quick observation. Um, one of the things that's been quite striking to me is how rare it is for four stars to resign on principle. Um, and I understand of all, all the reasons that one might not do that. However, of all the people who could, um, I'm quite confident that the, that the pension of a four star is, is, would generate a fairly decent lifestyle. It's not like you're going to get promoted. Um, four stars of all people are in the position to resign if they think the policy is unwise, but we really don't see that very often. Um, again, just an observation. Um, and it's worth thinking about the, the mechanisms
0: that produce that. You, you wonder that by the time someone gets to that level, the ego, the pride of, of having a career ruined by whatever is, is, is there's probably some institutional inhibitions that, that keeps one from doing that. Um, but yeah, it's a great point. Um, Tim, any thoughts on this one? Um, well, I'm,
3: I'm gonna sound a little bit more hard-nosed in some ways. Look, I think if civilian leadership tells you, um, I'm not gonna give you what you want to execute, the strategy that you want to execute. The military leadership has some responsibility to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, what can I get you with what I have that will approach the political objectives you want to achieve? Perhaps the fault is in our planning side and not necessarily in your demands or constraints. And we see at least a tentative effort to do that under Abrams with the Advanced Pacification Project, with Vietnamization. I mean, there are these theories that are taking bits and pieces of policies and strategies that already existed under Westmoreland in 67 and 68, and they begin to try and realign them in different ways. And they make more use of cords. They try and use the interagency. They try and find other ways to adapt to a situation where the current approach isn't working. And now they're gonna try and use the force package that they have to achieve it in a different way. Um, Those looked fairly promising in 1969. Uh, where they may have failed is not adequately linking uh, force levels to diplomatic achievements in terms of negotiations with the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Um, It's not clear whether that would have worked or not. And there was significant public pressure to bring troops home. So you get a disjuncture then on the civil military front in that for domestic political reasons, Nixon's taken out 150,000 troops a year. That's what's going to happen in the first three years. And it doesn't really matter what else is going on. He's going to bring those troops home. In those circumstances, it's very difficult for the military to adapt rapidly enough to changing conditions. But again, there's good evidence that they were trying to. Uh, this isn't to say that Westmoreland never changed his mind and was a total blockhead. It's just that. At some point, if you're the military leadership and you keep asking for reinforcements and civilian leadership says you're not gonna get them, well, then you actually may have to really fundamentally reassess what you've been doing and try and come up with a different way to do what you need to do. I think there are signs that we tried to do that in Vietnam, but the time pressure in the Nixon administration um, really put a lot of strain on efforts to both help the South Vietnamese do more stuff themselves and to be militarily successful with less on our part. Um, And so it became a losing situation, became sort of a a downward spiral. But um, that doesn't mean that it was irrevocably broken or that the lessons that we should draw out of this are quite so stark. Um, It looks as though actually there was more fluidity in civil military relations than maybe some of the analysts give credit for.
0: OK. Um, I would love to go down that rabbit hole more <laughs> some other time. But I do want to move the conversation on to, um, uh, so Dave, you talked about red team strategy. And we talk about the concept of the Maoist three phase approach uh, this week, where, where um, the, the uh, North Vietnamese spin on that as the Tron strategy and the, the you know political military. But it's essentially very Maoist in, in how they approach it. Um, they use this this communist, um, you know, uh, uh, backdrop for wanting to uh, conduct this war. But really, it's in many ways a war of national unification, right? And, and a war of, of unity of, of what culturally is is somewhat one country. So the, the question I have, Dave, and I want to start with you on this one is. You know, the, the North Vietnamese value, of the object is, is certainly through the roof was there any plausible counter to this was there any way they were ever going to
2: stop in your in your estimation so two things i mean it is an interesting question because it gets at this point um if nationalism is powerful which it is and it wants national unification um how can outsiders commit enough to discourage someone from doing that and I would say a couple things. One is that we have examples where nationalists have had to accept not getting what they want. Um, I'm just going to throw this one to Tim and say Ireland, um, where the Irish Civil War ends with the forces that are willing to accept less than everything they want winning. Now, the person who's willing to do that gets assassinated by the people who aren't willing to settle. But the Irish Republic decides it has no choice but to accept less than what it wants. And in the same neighborhood and at the same time, the North Koreans and the South Koreans, um, both Kim Il Sung and Syngman Rhee, wanted national reunification under them, um, and they had to settle for less than that. Not what they wanted, but it's what they got. So it can be done. There are times when nationalists can accept that they're not going to get what they want, or at least not going to get it in the short term. So, and then you that puts you in the question, the position of asking the next question. So why is it that? in Korea or in Ireland, forces were sufficient and conditions were such that nationals could accept less than what they wanted. Um, But in North Vietnam, was North Vietnam different in some way? That gets us to a different set of questions. The other thing I would say is that yes, the North wanted reunification under its terms. Um, The South had nationalists too. And this is, I think, one of the many tragedies of the Diem assassination in 1963, is that Diem, for all his faults, really did have a vision of national regeneration in the South based on Vietnamese ideas and Vietnamese concepts. However imperfect, um, however conflicted, um, there was actually something there. Diem was not, um, as is too often portrayed, this sort of simply corrupt and pathetic figure. Um, And in 1963, he's dead. And so that option becomes closed off. So nationalism is powerful, but there are ways that nationalism might actually work For benefit of the south and not just for the north so i throw that out as again something for people to think about thanks
0: okay i know i know that tim is probably chomping at the bit to jump on that ireland point but i want to go to john first and then uh
1: yeah i I just i have a hard time finding um a strategy that would work um my current project is on nationalism and and intervention and um only in specific, very set of narrow circumstances, um, often to being small, weaker countries defined in various ways, often islands or peninsulas, um, but it's very difficult with porous borders and in, in countries that are highly motivated, but in nationalist movements, which also have a long heritage and effective organization and a long history of organization. It's very difficult. I think the, the answer is that the United States would have had to stay there for another generation or so to see what would happen. And then, then it's possible that something could have changed. Uh, but then, of course, the countries around them change, and we don't know how, what the reaction would have been of the other major powers in the area. So I, I'd say it's, it's um, highly unlikely, but, but duration might have something to do with it.
0: So we can we not lose for a long time. It's kind of the, yeah, <laughs> Tim, we'll, we'll, we'll end with you on this one. Well, and I, I think the other thing to look at is
3: um, yes, nationalism is a powerful force, uh, but it tends to be linked again to political factions and how extreme or how devoted to the nationalist aim they are, or whether they're willing to compromise. And we saw in 68 and 69, um, you know, or at least in in the 60s at various points as the North Vietnamese transitioned to Le Duan in power, that there were debates about whether their military strategy was the right one because losses were really high. And there was a debate over whether attrition was gonna cause such devastation to North Vietnamese society that they were better off declaring a ceasefire, waiting a few years and coming back and trying again. Um, Le Duan, passed that test, um, the faction that might have chosen an alternate strategy or policy uh, was subdued. But the fact that that faction existed suggests that in any country, um, there's going to be a spectrum of devotion to whatever ideological commitment it it is that you have. Uh, In the case of Ireland, everybody was a Republican. Not everybody was willing to fight Britain to the very death in order to in order to succeed in liberating the entire island, which included six counties of people who didn't really want to part, be part of an Ireland. Um, so, a more pragmatic faction ended up not only having political authority, but then also having military superiority. And you know that helps understand why we still have an Irish problem today. In North Vietnam, it's possible that within the party that factions might have emerged that said the cost is too high. We need to step back and take a little bit longer, follow a Maoist strategy. We can fight a protracted war, but we need another half generation in order to create more soldiers. Um, and there's some evidence that at some point in the Westmoreland years, that was at least a debate in North Vietnam, uh, that they maintained their commitment to nationalism, but not necessarily to war at this time. I think we may see this same phenomenon with Russia and Ukraine. Um, there may be a settlement in the current war. I don't think most Russians are going to drop their interest in Ukraine in one way or another. It's just, you'll have a different faction in charge or a different political view in charge that says now is not the right
0: time. Put it on the table. We'll wait and come back another day. So what uh, What your comments made me think of here is that um... If the British are able to split uh the Irish between the factions of Michael Collins and um the guy with the French name, um Devalera. De valera thank De valera. you. I'm gonna lose my club card for for saying that, right? For forgetting that. But uh, maybe the maybe the savvy strategy would be to, somehow for us to split Ho Chi Minh and Le Duan in, in North Vietnam in terms of that uh, you know, getting in there and dividing those uh, as Dave calls it, the right wing and the left wing communist factions. Uh, But Dave, go ahead on this
2: one. Yeah, and so, I mean, on a bigger point, it takes the U.S. government a remarkably long time to catch on about the Sino-Soviet split. So the U.S. is not particularly well placed to do this kind of fine-grained distinction. Um, The other thing I would say, John Garfano says, and I think he's absolutely correct, that for the U.S. to make this fly would require a generational commitment. Um, And I'll note that the U.S. did make that generational commitment to Korea, where 70 years and counting on a commitment to South Korea. So it can be done. Doesn't mean it would have worked in North, in, in South Vietnam, but we did it in, in South Korea. Um, and again, the situations are different. How different are they? That's a whole separate discussion. Thanks.
0: Maybe, maybe that, that point also pulls a thread. If, if you, if you made that generation commitment to Korea, you just spent your, you know, the amount of the, the money and the time and the troops you had for Korea. And now you, you, you just don't have any more to, to do it on, uh, For Vietnam. So, yeah, interesting. Um, So, the um, talking about uh, uh, raising the point that we kind of pulled on a little bit before about um, the particular regimes within South Vietnam. Uh, And, uh, you know, some of these regimes are um, (coughs) corrupt, uh, not in touch with their people. You have this slew of elites that are. You know, French Catholics are are, are, are more more colonialist and and converted to Catholicism, then you have a bunch of peasants who are Buddhists. So there's this very stratified society and these leaders are are coming from the the elite faction. So the country isn't united. So you can see where the communist um, swan song kind of sounds good to a lot of these disenfranchised Buddhist peasants. Um, We don't do a very good job of engaging with with people like DM and, and then the, all the other uh, regimes that go through South Vietnam, and then by the time we get to Thu, it seems like we're it, at that point. Things are already kind of you know we're getting out and we're we're going out and we're not we're not coming back. Um, so Tim, I wanted to start this one with you, um, <clears throat> talking about uh, how do you deal with with these regimes in South Vietnam, whether they're whether they're corrupt, not the people you want, you know other places around the world, they take the assassination technique and install somebody who is favorable. It seems like that might've happened with, with Diem and then it didn't go well. Like what, what is the right solution to this? Um,
3: well, first off, there isn't a right solution and there was no magic solution to South Vietnam. Um, I think um, one of the things we should have done was spent more time talking to the French. Because they had a, they had a yeah. lot more situational awareness about what was going on in Vietnam and in South Vietnam than we did. And it's, it seems as though we tried to talk to the French on a number of levels, but once it got up into the higher, uh, the higher leadership, we tended to be very dismissive of the French and say, well, you lost. Why should we listen to you? We'll do better. Um, if you don't have granular knowledge of a society uh, and you're intervening in another society and trying to rebuild it, you're going to get in trouble pretty quickly. Um, I think, you know, this is sort of in the forefront of my mind because I just was sitting on a dissertation defense um, at another university. Uh, There are at least three major theories about how you simultaneously try and uh, rebuild a society and fight a counterinsurgency. And that's just a very complex thing to begin with. Uh, But one of them is our former colleague, uh, Jacqueline Hazelton, has just come out with a very good book on uh, talking about how actually really the first thing you need to do is you need to appeal to elites. And you need to lock in elite support because the elites have resources, they have networks, they have contacts, and they probably have paramilitary strength. And that is a basic building block of counterinsurgency success. And her book is sort of critiquing some of the other theories of counterinsurgency. It's not saying that she has all the answers, but certainly finding ways to lock elites in and get them committed is important. And if we look at South Vietnam, we didn't necessarily do a very good job of that. We were constantly trying to undermine elites with things like land reform and more democracy and other things that, that cause tensions with them. Um, That also prevented elites. Elites were able to make a common front against us, but not necessarily a common front against the North Vietnamese. Uh, So we lost effectiveness and efficiency there. A second theory is that you win the hearts and minds of the broad public um, and that you go down to them and you appeal to them and you find ways to make them loyal to the state and to the central government. That requires a central government that is appealing and that delivers the goods. And again, we had trouble finding ways to make the South Vietnamese government do that in the ways that we wanted to. There might have been ways that they could have done it effectively enough, but we tended to pressure them in the direction that we preferred. Uh, and then a third theory is that what you really wanna do is detach the sort of the, they're referred to as kind of marginal populations, but I think really what they mean is sort of neutral populations. Um, and try and sway them to your side, which is a kind of a variance on option B. Um, I don't think we did any of those things very well in Vietnam and that's a problem. And we struggled with them again in other places. In Iraq, in the surge in 2007, 2008, we were willing to make deals with elites that upset the host nation because we were willing to go to the sons of Iraq and we were willing to hire a whole bunch of Sunni militias and say, no, this is what we need to do to stabilize this immediate threat. And that approach, at least in the short term, worked. We tried at various times in Afghanistan to work with the warlords because the warlords are the elites who have, you know, uh, sway over large swaths of territory. And if they come to support the government, that might be a way of eroding support for the insurgency. On that issue, we had more trouble. And that has both cultural reasons, I suspect. Afghanistan, again, is very different than Iraq. Um, But it also may be a a problem of strategy that we were not able to commit ourselves to that path or to commit ourselves consistently to that path. Um, Overall, I just, I think it's really hard. Um, Corruption in most societies is basically the grease that makes the system work. Um, It doesn't lead to efficiency, but it may lead to effectiveness. However, corruption, a corrupt society, which is then flooded with American resources, which encourages corruption, um, and is challenged by a powerful ideology, uh, in, in this case, the combination of communism and nationalism, uh, makes it very vulnerable. And I'm not sure there were any really easy solutions here, again, that didn't involve a much more protracted commitment, perhaps not as massive a commitment, Mm -hmm. but a a more protracted American commitment over time Mm -hmm. to working with South Vietnam in the way that as Dave pointed out, we work with South Korea. Um, Okay,
2: interesting. Dave, we'll uh, we'll go to you next. So I would just make a a comparative point. Um, It is absolutely true that the South Vietnamese elite were in many ways out of touch with the population, yes. Um, South Vietnamese elite were in many ways corrupt and exploitative, yes. Um, The problem is that that's true lots and lots and lots of places. Um, Nationalist elites, nationalist leaders are almost always not from the mass of the population. Communist leaders are almost never from the mass of the population. Um, And so I don't think it's enough to say South Vietnamese elites were out of touch with their population and corrupt because that's always true. Um, But communists don't always win. Uh, And so you have to take the next steps. What are the specific things that make South Vietnam different than other places? Um, And again, this gets us into very different sorts of questions than simply saying they're Catholic and they're landlords. And so the story is over with. Um, It's just more complicated than that. Um, And and again, I I keep going back to Korea, but but Korea is in many ways a very interesting comparative case. Syngman Rhee was Christian and spent tons of time outside of Korea. Um, And so if you want a nationalist leader who is in those ways out of touch with his population, it would be Syngman Rhee. And yet, South Korea is still around and South Vietnam is not. Um, and so you have to sort of keep asking the next questions. What, what other things here are, are influential on the outcome? I'll just throw that out for thought.
1: Hmm.
0: I guess that also rhymes with uh, Ho Chi Minh, right? Also spent a lot of time outside of, uh, right. outside of Vietnam. Yeah. John, we'll go to you next on this
1: one. Yeah, I mean, I think they've covered it. The, essential, uh, um, the underlying problem is that our clients have leverage over us. So, um, and they are complex uh, states with their own nationalism, as Professor Stone said earlier. Uh, So they're going to have their vision of how things should be done. They probably know their country a little better than we do. Um, But uh, there have been studies of the attempts by the United States to uh, reform and improve the governance of countries dating back to, you know, the Philippines through the cases that we're talking today and um, a number of them in Latin America and it's very difficult and uh, precisely for these uh, for these reasons. So um, there's no easy answer but uh, you have to remember that they are their own nation uh, they have their own nationalism and see their own future and they have a tremendous amount of leverage over the country that has expended uh, an incredible amount of resources and time on it. So um, you're limited, you know. And Dew did knew that. I mean, he 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 managed it very well. It's quite possible that if he had come in in 1963 or 64, that things could have been could have been different. Um, but it was late by that time. Just like cords and accelerated pacification was very late.
0: So um, a quick follow up on this one, Tim. You mentioned about you know understanding what happened with the French. One of the readings we have for not this course but the senior course is the Trapnell reading, where, um, you know, General Trapnell did have a, a very uh, systematic approach to here's everything the French did, and oh by the way they weren't doing all these things well, and he briefs briefs Congress on this, and it's a, a lot of this stuff you read it and it's you shake your head because it's basically ignored maybe does this does this harken back to our civil relations question divide about there's uh, you know we just uh, history repeats itself or what are, what's your thoughts on this one well
3: i'm not i mean i'm not sure how much it has to do with congress um, i think it it has a lot to do you know we we sent the military over an advisory mission because that seemed to be the right thing to do and over time we moved away from that advisory mission and towards more traditional military Activity. Um, we identified the fact that we needed to have large numbers of advisors with South Vietnamese forces, especially at a time that they began to expand that force in, from sixty-eight to seventy in sort of almost logarithmic ways. Um, but we didn't actually create the advisory positions. We didn't incentivize advisors. Uh, we didn't have enough of them. So. Some of this may be civil. Some of it may be um, hubris—the idea that we felt like, "Well, we'll do better than the French because the French lost their last couple of wars and we didn't." Um, yeah. But some of it also may simply be more or- military organization. Um, you know, I think Krepenevich is not completely right when he talks about the, green, the big green machine, but certainly army doctrine leaned towards certain kinds of solutions and away from others because others were not what they trained for. And that has probably a fair amount of explanation. The fact that at the very end of the conflict, we can actually have a civilian advisor in charge of military forces in a core sized area uh, suggests that we actually made significant innovation. Um, but we could have done that in 1964 and maybe have done it much more effectively. Um, so there's a, there's a learning phase, but there's also strong resistance, I think, to learning um, and a resistance to, you know, finding ways to solve the Vietnam problem militarily that didn't work for the military personnel system. Um, you know, year and six month rotations for officers is, is kind of nutty. But at the same time, that's what the personnel system wanted. On the other hand, it did not create the kind of effective leaders with local knowledge that you really might need for at least some of the missions we were trying to carry out. So some of this, I think, is a, is a, a service problem as well as perhaps as well.
0: Well, speaking of service problems, so in, in John's lecture, he talked about the, the Sigma war games where these war games were telling us, hey, not a good idea. Don't fight in Vietnam. You, you know, odds of success limited, and this is just summarily ignored, right? Uh, and that seems to be an, an interesting trend in the military because I think there's a lot of war games that get that tell us certain things, and we make very conscious choices to uh, ignore them and, and and still go forward as uh, as planned. But John, starting the conversation with you on this one is, you know, what why why this tenancy, and, and why did this happen?
1: Well, it's, um I don't, you know, I, I don't have a lot of engagement with um, current uh, games, although I've been involved in a number here and at the Army War College. Um, there is something called the planning fallacy, and there's some very good studies about this, a lot of them from, from business, which uh, talk about the increasing confidence that people have, the more time they spend planning and the more um, detailed the plans are, and um, that, that don't always work out in, in, you know, in reality. So there might be an element of that. Um, this was a new war, we have to remember that. Um, it's a strange kind of war combination of conventional and non-conventional issues. Um, it's not exactly Korea. And so I think they're grasping and there's probably a lot of room for argument it wasn't just military involved in those games too. You know, there were the, there were civilians involved. So I think there's probably some element of American optimism and that is a cultural trait and probably a cultural dimension of our strategy in many cases. And it was, it was the case here. It changed after Vietnam, I believe. Um, but, um, but that, that was a, that was an issue then. So, um, And then I think you do have to look probably more at the individuals. I I showed the game to some uh, war gamers at Carlisle and, um, you know, they said it was a pretty good game. I think it wasn't, it wasn't ideal and that there weren't enough, uh, there weren't enough points of, I guess, areas where you could notify where you could find definite failure or point to fail strategies. Um, So you'd have to look at the game and look at the people, involved and what their backgrounds were and see if they were the right people. And I'd say all those lessons are probably relevant today. You know, the planning fallacy challenge, uh, who's involved in the game, what's the quality of the game. I think who's critiquing it is an issue as well. And the more classified things get, the smaller that universe is.
0: Okay.
2: Uh, Dave, any thoughts on this one? Uh, I'm going to defer. Don't have a lot to add to what John said, so I'm going to pass. Tim, anything?
3: Um, Not a lot. I mean, there's lots of studies of games and the flaws of games and how they can go wrong and how they can be how they can be done correctly. Um, It is not unusual for great powers to ignore the results of games if they don't accord with political preference. we talk about this in the war, in the Second World War case when the Japanese wargamed Midway. Uh, we, war planned, we we wargamed Warplan Orange quite well, but that didn't mean that Admiral Kimmel wasn't about to go out and do all the things that the wargames told us not to do if there had not been a Pearl Harbor attack. So these games are useful. They can be instructive, but they're not a panacea. Um, and the level of impact that they actually have uh, when the rubber hits the road is less clear.
0: Okay, so um, in the in the time remaining, wanted to move kind of the discussion to the to the contemporary realm. Um, the ending of how Vietnam ended in, in the in the final days, and the ending of of Afghanistan are just eerily similar. Um, negotiating uh, with you know, basically negotiating concessions so we can leave negotiating without our uh, host nation uh, partner at the uh, as part of the negotiations, uh, and then a uh, a last minute uh, escape and, and evacuation that just, um, you know, really gives us a black eye in terms of world standing and in terms of, of prestige and honor and, and all these other things. So. Um, you know, why, why, do, why does history repeat? Why didn't we learn these lessons from Vietnam? Don't we have courses like this that are supposed to prevent us from, from making these mistakes again? Um, so it kind of, I know it's an open-ended conceptual question, but uh, a, lot to, a lot to play with there. Um, uh, Tim, we'll start with you.
3: Yeah, um, let, me be, let me be a little uh, um, argumentative. Um, there's a big difference between Vietnam and Afghanistan, right? In Vietnam, our domestic politics were racked by the impact of Vietnam. It had a profound social effect. It had a profound domestic political effect. Um, the Nixon administration compressed withdrawal into a four year period with an artificial deadline of saying, we got to get out of here by 1972. Um, so the time pressure and the domestic pressure on Vietnam were enormous. Uh, the time pressure and, and domestic pressure on Afghanistan were not. Uh, we talked earlier about, well, you know, maybe the only solution to Vietnam was that we stay there for a generation. Well we stayed in Afghanistan for a generation. Um, we had periodic surges where we had large numbers of troops there. but after 2014, we're talking 10 to 15,000 US. personnel, plus international partners uh, in Afghanistan, with the very simple objective of basically not letting Kabul collapse. Uh, We could have done that for a long period of time fairly cheaply, Uh, but eventually it became clear that it wasn't going to work. I mean, we could prop up an Afghan regime, but we could not alter an Afghan society, nor could we prevent the Taliban given the resources we were willing to commit. Nor could we prevent the Taliban from encroaching more and more and more on Afghan society. Um, and two administrations decided that it was time for the U.S. to leave. I mean, it was this was not Biden did not do this, um, you know, as a surprise. The commitment of the Trump administration was they wanted U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. That is a that is a high policy decision, and not one I think that is nearly as driven. Either by military exigency or by domestic politics. So these are kind of different things. Afghanistan, I would say, is looks more like an imperial war. Um, Vietnam was more of a catastrophe, but there, you know, European empires stayed in distant places and fought at fairly low levels for decades. Uh, And as long as it wasn't too expensive. And as long as there wasn't a lot of attention from the home front, they could continue doing that. I think you could make a case we could have done that in Afghanistan. I'm not sure it would have been wise. Uh, But the fact was, there wasn't much to protect there if we weren't doing the protecting. And that, I think, um, you know, I'm not sure I know how to explain that. But I also think it's a very different kind of problem than the one that we had in South Vietnam, where we were racing to get out. Um, And that I think had much more of an impact on perceptions of U.S. power and U.S. authority in the international system than Afghanistan did. Now, that's my own contrarian position, but I'll stick by it until one of my colleagues contradicts me and tells me how wrong I am.
0: We'll let Dave do that next.
2: Sure, so two things I would say. I mean, one is, uh, you mentioned, John, the potential prestige hit, and obviously it doesn't look good. That said, in both Vietnam and in Afghanistan, it wasn't as though our allies were saying, oh, please keep doing this. We think this is a fantastic idea. Um, that They just weren't. Um, and so I think the, the the prestige hit. The other thing I would say in terms of that is um, looking at the response to Ukraine, um, our most important allies are right on board in terms of the, the fight over Ukraine. Um, and so I, I don't see the direct impact of Afghanistan there. Again, that's that's a very quick answer to a very complicated question. The other thing, the big thing that jumps out at me, though, I mean, I agree there is there's a structural similarity here. Um, The big thing that jumps out at me, though, is after the U.S. leaves South Vietnam, South Vietnam stands up and fights a very capable adversary for two years before it's finally defeated. Um, The government of Afghanistan, after the U.S. leaves, fights for about two weeks. I think that says something about the comparative capability of the states that the U.S. left behind. The South Vietnam had a great deal more capability and staying power than the government of Afghanistan did for a whole series of very complicated reasons. But that's the thing that jumps out at me, um, is that the two situations end up looking very different simply by virtue of what the regimes left behind are able to do. Um, South Vietnam was able to do quite a bit. Um, The Afghanistan, government of Afghanistan was not. Mm -hmm. I guess that does resonate in the, in the
0: sense that um, it seems like after Vietnam, for many reasons, the military was complete loss of morale, you know, very broken, very whatever, whereas after Afghanistan, maybe because we're fighting ISIS and Iraq at the same time. So it's like, you know, two wins, one loss in the, in the, <laughs> in the scorecard, you know, doesn't seem to feel that way um, uh, now. But uh, but yeah, go ahead, Dave.
2: Well, and just very quickly on that, I mean, Tim's point about the long-term sustainability of Afghanistan, on the one hand, I think Tim's absolutely right that the the amount of money and personnel that the US was committing to Afghanistan, the US could afford to commit for a a very long period of time. The flip side of that is that the corrosive effects of Afghanistan were relatively limited. Whereas in Vietnam, at at the peak, you're talking 500,000 American soldiers. That's a really big effect. Uh, and Afghanistan, by the time we get to the last 10 years of the war, really just doesn't have that same kind of um, mass to it. And so not the same sort of effect on the military that it leaves behind, the U.S. military that that leaves behind. Yeah. Thanks.
0: Great point. John, we'll uh, have a final comment
1: with you. Yeah, just to build on uh, what Dave Stone just said, it's not it, it's also um, not only what we left behind in terms of our ally, but it's the, what the enemy wants to do and the nature of the enemy. And in Afghanistan, the enemy was within. In Vietnam, it was somewhat, um, in fact, it, it, there were, it was became a conventional war and it was really the North's choice to attack and they did not attack until 1975. Um, the, the, the Taliban was ready. They were there. Um, they had been attacking, but um, so there's a difference in terms of the enemy and what their choice does as well. Um, I would critique, in fact, the staying in during two administrations, and even the end of Obama, more than the way that we got out, um, the surge—you know—the talk of what the surge was going to accomplish was uh, really just silly and exaggerated. And so there was a lot of cost and uh, suffering, and some deaths that probably didn't need to happen. Now, did we leave the country the way it 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 it, it, it should have been? Uh, no but that was a problem that dated back 10 or 15 years so I would I just think you know at some point somebody had to make a decision to um, get out uh, and then finally you're right and you have a reason to be, you have a reason to be upset about the nature of the departure that's a sieve mill issue and and even more than that it's an interagency issue and the story on this is going to be very interesting there were way too many surprises uh, at ser- at several levels of the government uh, that should not have occurred. And I think that's gonna be a very interesting uh, and sad story when it comes out. Thanks. All right. Great discussion today, gentlemen. Thank
0: you for the insightful thoughts. Um, we'll see everybody next time on
1: Profiles and Strategy. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you.